2: Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam X. McNeil, PhD student at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Today we have Dr. W. Caleb McDaniel, Associate Professor of History at Rice University. Dr. McDaniel is on to discuss his brand new book, Sweet Taste of Liberty, a true story of slavery and restitution in America. And Sweet Taste of Liberty is published by our friends at Oxford University Press. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, for sure. And um, you know, thank you so much once again for coming on. And, you know, it's it's been a pleasure reading your book and um really being able to see, you know, just an amazing story and, and, and a historian, you know, crafting um you know uh, an amazing story. And so I just really appreciate you for your work. And so um, before we get into uh, uh, the, the you know, the, the real bare bones of the book, can you talk to us about how you got to this particular subject?
1: Sure. Well, the book tells the story of Henrietta Wood, a formerly enslaved woman who was freed before the Civil War, but then was kidnapped and re-enslaved in 1853. And she managed after the Civil War to sue the man who had kidnapped and enslaved her and won the largest known sum of restitution ever awarded by a US court to a formerly enslaved person. And so I first learned about her story from an interview that she gave in 1879 to a small town Ohio newspaper. And I read that back in 2014. Uh, At the time I was actually doing research on a different subject. I was studying enslaved people who were forcibly removed to Texas during the Civil War by Confederate planters who were trying to evade the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, quote unquote, refugee enslaved people uh, to Confederate Texas. And so um, this interview uh, came to my attention because that was also part of Wood's story during the Civil War, she was taken to Texas as part of her long ordeal. And so once I started reading about all the twists and turns of her case, though, um, her story quickly became the one that I was most interested in, in telling. And I started to try to you know, follow all the clues that I could from her interview, and it led me to other sources that led to the book.
2: Outstanding. And so um with that, you know, when when like what was like the year around when you started to when when this all really kinda came together? Uh because I know that people pick things up and don't always write about them immediately, you know.
1: Yeah, no, it it was in 2014 and I think um, you know, the reasons why the story was especially compelling to me at that moment had a lot to do with the timing. Uh, that was, of course, during the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. And so there was a lot of conversation among professional historians, but also in the general public about the meaning of the Civil War and a sort of reassessment of uh, some of the the jagged edges of the end of the Civil War and the ways that emancipation came uh, and what it left undone uh, it was very much a topic of, of conversation um, at that time. There was also, um, in the summer of 2014, the article uh, Case for Reparations was published by Ta-Nehisi Coates in the Atlantic Magazine. And so there was a lot of conversation in the public sphere about reparations, cases for it, cases against it. But when I read Henrietta Wood's story, it seemed to me that here potentially was a case of uh, a kind of reparations that might speak to those current debates. And so there was a lot um you know sort of in the air I guess in in 2014 in particular that made me want to know more about her story.
2: Outstanding and and that and that's in part why I wondered, you know, how how recent you know it was it seems like it seemed like that um initially. And so um with that being said, can you talk to us as well about you know what was, you know, what was the archival process for you like for this book?
1: Well, it it was um for me, a very different process than my first book. My first book was more of a sort of intellectual and cultural history of the abolitionist movement. And in that case, uh, I had, you know, an abundance of sources because the abolitionists wrote and published a lot. And, um, you know, there was almost the challenge of how to wade through all of their correspondence and, and publications, you know, in this case, it was much more of a kind of, um, Sleuthing effort to try to piece together um, different parts of the story and follow breadcrumbs and clues. You know where they led to a source here, a source there. Um, ultimately, I think there were archives in uh, around ten states that had little bits of the story, fragments of of the archive that I was able to pull together um, to to write this narrative. Of course, it wasn't possible to to answer every question that I had about her story, but what amazed me was how much I was able to find, um, which is really a testament to how detailed her memories were of what had happened in her life. Uh, I mentioned that she gave an interview in 1879. Uh, She also gave another interview in 1876 to a different reporter. And those two interviews uh, had very detailed memories with names and dates and places um, that helped me to find sources about the people that she had encountered and the people who had perpetrated these you know, crimes against her. Um, and then she, of course, also had told her story in her lawsuit um, that uh, we mentioned at the outset. And so um, a lot of the archival process was starting from those interviews and that um, lawsuit and then working out from there using the the details in those sources
2: and correct me if i'm wrong it is now this is 2019 and that was 1879 so that would make it what 140 years uh wow an important um commemoration too so i uh, you know so like it, it's just a lot of you know you know as historians we love you know commemorations we love you know those round like we like those numbers that have zeros at the end um not, they're not always out in our bank accounts, but you know, um, in, in our commemorations, we we certainly love them. Um, and so, uh, one last bit about the archival part too, because it it, it I think comes to uh, a crux of you know when you author s- the the story of someone else, right? Were you able to find any of um, Mrs. Woods' um, living descendants, um, and, and had, were they uh, were they you know, part of any of this process as well.
1: Absolutely, and and that was actually one of the, the greatest privileges of working on the book was uh, being able to meet one of Henrietta Wood's great-great-granddaughters. It was the first descendant I, I contacted. The book is actually dedicated to her, a woman named Winona Adkins, who unfortunately passed away last year after a battle with colon cancer. Um, but I was able to to speak with her and meet with her in person, and. Um, she was able to provide me with some photos that are published in the book of uh, family members, including Wood's son, Arthur Sims, who was the uh, great-grandfather of one on Atkins. And so she actually remembered as a young girl um, her great-grandfather living in the same house where she grew up in Chicago. And so um, he died in 1951, and she was born in 1944. So, Um, you know, there was about six or seven years where they lived together in the same house. And, you know, one of the things that that I think really communicates powerfully is how close uh, this history is to us. You know, you mentioned it's 140 years since Wood gave that interview in 1879. Uh, But on the other hand, I was able to, you know, speak in Oakland with someone whose lifespan overlapped with Uh, the life of Wood's son, who was born enslaved in Mississippi in 1856. And so um, this isn't a a distant history, but, you know, is one that is still close to us in a lot of ways.
2: Exactly. And and that's why, you know, especially during these times when we have these debates um, about reparations and and about, um, you know, you know, thinking about where we are with that particular conversation is why I think that, uh, sweet taste of Liberty is, you know, a, a not only a, a great book just on its own, but it's also uh, a very timely, uh, b- book as well, considering, you know, uh, the, the, the hearings that happened on, um, Juneteenth earlier, uh, this year. And so, um, with that, when it comes to this book, right? You know, you were talking about your your previous book on the abolitionists, which I have downstairs in my library. So thank you for that. <laughs> you know, de- definitely thank you for that one. Um, but also, can you talk to us about because um, you, you had you had you had referenced it briefly um, in your earlier remarks? What was the what if you had to s- break it down to one? What would have been your biggest? What was your biggest challenge? In writing this book, what, what what would you say was the biggest, like the single biggest challenge that you that you had um, with with writing this book and crafting? it?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think uh, you're right that certainly what was happening in the present day was very much on my mind and sort of drew me to the story. Um, and I think you know one challenge historians always have is. Trying to represent the the past uh, in a way that is as as faithful as possible to the record, you know, and is accountable to the people who lived that history, um, you know, and speaking to the present without allowing the present to um, to distort that their own story. Um, and so, I think that was that was one challenge of sort of moving um, in my own mind back and forth between contemporary debates and. Just trying to understand um, this particular person's life uh, in her own context, uh, but I think that's you know always one of the challenges in particular that historians of slavery face. I, I know um, Stephanie Smallwood has talked about writing histories that are accountable to the enslaved, uh, you know, and try as much as possible to um, tell the story in a way that. Uh, honors their own um, experience, their lived experience, and their own um, reflections on those experiences. And that's, you know, especially challenging in in cases where we don't have a lot of information about particular enslaved people. Um, In this case, we had the two interviews that Wood gave. Um, Of course, they were mediated through the interviewers that she spoke with. Uh, and we had you know her petition to to uh, the court and so um, on on the one hand, it seemed as though I had a lot of sources, but at the same time, I faced the challenge of of trying to to grapple with what's left out of those sources and what the silences are that still remain in in this archival record and so that was another I think big challenge is um, wanting to um, to do the best that I could with this material that, um, that would had had left and had, had wanted to be shared, you know, in these newspaper accounts um, and to sort of try to do them justice as, as some clues about how she herself would have wanted the story to be told. While at the same time, also recognizing that, um, that the access that we have to her own perspective is not totally unmediated or, or perfect by any means.
2: And and with that too you, you had mentioned uh Dr. Stephanie Smallwood and, and leaning on her uh uh statement of uh, writing histories that are accountable to the enslaved, you know that that in part also takes up uh a question of creativity and, and the historians uh uh you know use of, of, you know, just just the creative um within themselves and so how, how did you know? How do you think about this story as one of not being created, right? Not in like a, a novelistic way, but thinking about you know what it means to be creative with the story, and, and especially because you know you, you know you're talking about the the fragmented archive and um, and how Wood did provide a wealth of information and a lot of dates, which are, is not in many or or all or many, um, stories of formerly enslaved people. So, um, can you talk about that and also, um, talk to us about, you know, what are, what was something that you thought of when it came to Wood that was just astounding that you were kind of maybe surprised to find in, 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 her story and in the archive?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, on, on the first question, I, I think that, um, you know, another, another scholar whose who's work sort of informed my thinking about this, this idea, Hartman, uh, who's written about the, um, the ways that, you know, not everything can be verified in the archives that enslavers left behind about enslaved people. And so um, if we as historians refuse to, to take the risk of, of imagining um, and trying to think beyond the archive, then we will sort of, you know, allow this archive that was created by uh, enslavers to stand unchallenged. And so, uh, you know, I think in the appendix of the book, I talk a little bit about, about the, um, the gaps that remain in the story about Henrietta Wood, but also the importance of uh, trying to, as Hartman puts it, imagine what cannot be verified. Um, of course, in a in a disciplined way that is also um, accountable to what we know. You know, you don't want to to uh, to imagine in a way that's not constrained by what else we know about enslaved people's experience and and what she herself said in these interviews. But nonetheless, that is a challenge I think historians um, need to to take up uh, in order to try to get to the lived experience of, of people who endured and survived slavery. Um, in terms of what was surprising about her story, I mean, there was so much uh, that was surprising. Um, <clears throat> she was somebody who I think in her life uh, experienced um, so many kinds of slavery in so many different places. Uh, you know, historians of slavery are aware of, of how varied um, enslaved people's experience could be depending on whether they, you know, lived in an urban setting or in a rural setting in the Deep South or the Upper South, uh, if they worked in in households or they worked in the fields, um, if they were enslaved or free. But all of these parts of of the African-American experience in the 19th century, um, in a way, her story touched on, you know, all of those different areas. And I was just continually surprised by um, how much, time and space her story um, spanned and how many um, different places uh, that enabled the the narrative to travel to. Um, I was also, I don't want to give away too much of of the the narrative of the book, but um, one of the things that was uh, especially um, amazing to me was she was like many enslaved people separated from her family at an early age for the first time. She was sold when she was 14 years old away from the Northern Kentucky farm where she was born and separated from her parents and her siblings there. Um, And so like, um, you know, most enslaved people whose kinship ties were uh, torn apart by the interstate slave trade, she uh, longed for the opportunity to reunite uh, with family members. And um, one of the most astonishing moments in, in the story is when um, she's able to, uh, as she talks about in one of her interviews, uh, reunite with her mother briefly, uh, although it was under some tragic circumstances. Um, and I was able to, it seemed sort of you know, so amazing to me as to almost be unbelievable that she could have come across her mother in this setting. But then I was able to find a census record that did place her mother in the place, you know, where uh, she remembered meeting her. And so that was uh, just kind of one of those wow moments where um, the archive does kind of disclose this uh, amazing, um, you know, almost unbelievable encounter.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS?
2: when when I was reading your book, that was one of the parts that I enjoyed the most um, ab- about reading uh, "Sweet Taste of Liberty" is just how well written the book was. Like when I tell you, like, <clears throat> um, re- you know, being able to just sit back on my couch and just read, just the the tragic, the riveting, the amazing, the oh my god, like kind of, you know, so so it was a it was um you know it was effective in that way and so um good on you on that one and and also yeah yeah no no problem it's why uh my my advisor Dr. Eric Armstrong Dunbar was like you go, you 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 gonna uh interview as she called you not me as she called you you gonna interview Caleb I was like yeah you know she was happy about that hey Dr. Dunbar I know you're listening um but you know one of the other parts that you had just mentioned and and this goes to the relevance uh the 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 multifocal um relevance of the story um you talk about family separations and and obviously you know that is something that is very much on the mind of many Americans um you know in, in this country and so um you know that was another part that i thought was, um, what was astounding was just seeing all the different ways of how your book, though you are not trying to, you know, you're, 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 you're not trying to exclusively speak to the present. There's so many different ways that your book interrogates the present. Mm -hmm. And and, yeah, so thank you. yeah.
1: I mean, I think that's a, I think that's less a testament to, to my book and more to just the ways that the legacies of, of so much of this history lives on, uh, so that so that it's hard not to to see these resonances between the the past and the present. Um, I think that's you know one of the things that projects like the sixteen nineteen project have have um, done so effectively is uh, to, and the abolitionists kind of did this too. Uh, William William Lee Garrison would often in in the Liberator publish uh, you know uh, two stories side by side and say look on this picture. And on this, you know, and I think that's, that's kind of what s- some of these projects and, and hopefully parts of the story do is without necessarily, uh, overlooking the discontinuities or differences between things in the past and the present that when you look on this picture and then you look on this, um, it's hard not to see, uh, parallels and echoes.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, also, um, <clears throat> Another uh, question that I have uh, for you in regards to the story, um, especially you know thinking about what it means, you know what what are some of like the the meanings of the story that you take out as as the author of this particular story, you know you know the uh, you know obviously the, this present book is done because I have it and the world has it. And you've, you're going on this stupendous tour that, uh, of places that I'm looking at right now. Um, you know, you've gone to I have the list right now. You have gone to Brazos bookstore in Houston. You've gone to Book People in Austin, um, Octavia Books in New Orleans, and, and the list goes on. Um, how has this story changed you? as as a person if you don't mind uh bringing you know your personal self uh, uh uh slightly into the story
1: well that's yeah that's a that's a big question i think it's probably one of those things that i'm still learning you know and and as time passes i'll be able to look back and reflect on it i mean it's i think it's it's been um it's been a powerful experience to talk about the story to a lot of different audiences and one of the questions that they have is about sort of what the lessons are for today. Um, I think, um, and I talk about this a little bit in the epilogue of the book. Um, I want, you know, sort of readers of the story, I don't want to necessarily, um, uh, tell readers what they should conclude. I I try to leave the questions open for readers to reflect on. Um, but I think, you know, in our current day debates about reparations, uh as you mentioned there was the hearings this summer in congress about it i think uh, a couple of things that this story can contribute to those debates is first of all just an awareness of how um, long the struggle for reparations has been that is not sort of a uh a recent um uh struggle of course this is something that scholars of african-american history know well but the general public uh, i don't think is as as aware of Um, Just how long and and deep and wide this tradition is stretching back to the post-revolutionary period with women like uh, Belinda Sutton who sued her uh, owner's estate for a pension and continuing on to Cali House in the late 19th century leading a grassroots movement for uh, ex-slave pensions from the government Um, and then of course continuing into the long 20th century history of the struggle for reparations I think you know what Henrietta Wood's story shows is that formerly enslaved people um and enslaved people from the earliest possible moment have articulated the uh, the justice of restitutionary claims um f- from slavery, and uh, that that in itself is sort of important to to stress um in the in the public debates um and I think the other lesson it it that I came away with um I mentioned earlier meeting one of the descendants of Henrietta Wood who knew her great-grandfather, Arthur Sims. And I think um, learning about Sims was actually one of the moments that convinced me that uh, there could be a book here as opposed to an article or a smaller uh, piece of writing. Because Sims, uh, as I mentioned, lived into his 90s and died in Chicago in 1951 after he had practiced law on the South side of Chicago for uh, around 50 years. And uh, that's because he was able um, to become one of the first African-American graduates of Northwestern University's law school back in the 1880s. Um, And uh, so his story of moving to Chicago after Wood's victory against uh, Zebulon Ward in this lawsuit for restitution uh, really shows the differences that the judgment made in the life of her family. Um, so I think, um, on the one hand, the amount that she won—I can't remember if I've mentioned it yet—you know, she won twenty-five hundred dollars from this lawsuit, which was only a fraction of the twenty thousand dollars she had asked for from the court. But it was nonetheless a significant amount of money, uh, worth approximately sixty to sixty-five thousand dollars in today's currency, and that money enabled, uh, I believe, her son to. Purchase a house in Chicago at a time when when home ownership was extremely rare um, for anyone, and especially for African Americans in Chicago at that time. And then that house became an asset that he used to help fund his legal education and set his own family onto a path into the middle class. So, you know, in some respects, her story and his story offers a kind of um, narrative about what might have been. Uh, in a place like Chicago, for families, had there been more um, wealth uh, at the beginning and the in the immediate aftermath of emancipation, but at the same time, if you look at that larger context in which he lived on the South Side of Chicago, with redlining and housing discrimination and mass incarceration and the kind of continued um, oppressions that form the basis for many contemporary um cases for reparations um you know then one has to to wonder um how how much did would win you know uh, she certainly for her own family did uh make a big difference but there's also all of these other uh people uh and uh, stories that don't end uh as well
2: yeah and that and that's the the that's the part that I'm brushing up against with my work um, on the American revolution. And, you know, was the war revolutionary uh, for, for the masses of, of black folks. And, and I say no, but that doesn't foreclose upon the success of, you know, the the tens of thousands of individuals who were able to, to, to be liberated and gain freedom um, largely through the, through the British, but not exclusively. And um, it's trying to like, you know, like you're authoring a story of a individual. And so the question is always like, how much do we put into the lasting meanings of their, um, uh, of their situation? And it's like, you know, it, it, it's it's tough but you know it's why um it's better that we have these books out into the world thank you dr mcdaniel uh so that we can you know uh, uh bring all the stories into 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 the light and um and, and i have a one other question too so you had mentioned uh Zebulin uh ward and um you know what a dastardly i don't want to say devil but i think i just said it and so um you know, have you encountered any of his um descendants with this story too? Because then you have that you have that you have that other part of the present too, that's that you're not only talking about uh Mrs. Ward, but you're also talking about, you know, um, you know, this other part too.
1: You know, I, I didn't have uh as much success um connecting with descendants of, of Zebulon Ward. Although, you know, and in, in, I think it's, it's clear that, um, and this is another way of thinking about the significance of her victory, that while the $2,500 was um, a significant amount for her and Sims and, and their family, it was a drop in the bucket of what Ward could have afforded to pay. Uh, by the end of his life, he had made multiple fortunes, um, largely through uh, becoming a pioneer of convict leasing regimes, in the American South, he managed the penitentiaries in Antebellum, Kentucky, and then after the Civil War, he was the keeper of the state penitentiary in Tennessee, and then in Arkansas. So he made a huge amount of money in those positions, so much that by the time he died in the 1890s, he left behind an estate to his family worth at least $600,000. So that made you know him kind of a multimillionaire in today's terms. Um, and so I, I do think, you know, if you, if you sort of, uh, you certainly could weigh the, the gains that Wood's family made alongside um, Ward's family and what that wealth would have meant uh, for his family and, and descendants. Uh, but I also think, too, that, you know, today's um, arguments about reparations often focus less on the wealth of individual uh, families uh, and uh, slaveholders' descendants and really shifting the conversation more to the complicity of the federal government and state governments in maintaining uh, slavery and Jim Crow and segregation over a long period of time. And so um, I, I I don't know as much about uh, Zebulun Ward's descendants, but I also think that, uh, you know, in some ways, maybe that um, will prevent readers from thinking that, you know, this story is, is largely about trying to sort of settle up um, individual debts between uh, individual families. I think really what the story points to by the end of it, if you think about um, convict leasing and the role that the state played in, in systems like that, you know, that um, really what we need to think about are these, you know, these systemic um, investments that, um that governments have made in white supremacy over many generations and how can we repair that, uh, through some, some system of reparations in the present.
2: Couldn't have said it better myself. Could not have said it better myself. And I, and, and I didn't because I'm not the one who wrote the book. So, uh, <laughs> there we go. There we go. And, um, and, and I had misspoke. I said, um, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Ward, it's, uh, Mrs. Wood. Um, just want to make sure the record right, gets right. that one. So I don't think I'm out here just, uh, you know, dilly-dallying out here um well
1: it was confusing i did find you know their names are so so similar wood and ward yeah, and ward. yeah. That, that was kind of one challenge of, of writing the book you know in a copy editing stage i was definitely you know trying to make absolutely sure that there was no uh ac- you know slip <laughs> of uh, confusing the two, two yeah most,
2: most definitely yeah you de- you definitely uh <laughs> definitely don't want to do that and uh i've had i've done talks before and i'm like oh shoot did i just did I just really just <laughs> and, and you never remember it in the moment, usually. It's usually like after sure, the q and yeah. is over and you're like, shoot, they put this on record. Um, and, and so, you know, in the last couple of minutes that we have you, um, can we, you know, can you talk to us, you know, now that, you know, uh, Sweet Taste of Liberty, you know, like I said, it's out to the world, you know, we're reading it, we're interviewing it for it, you know, you're going on this awesome tour. Um, you know, are, do you have anything in the works for, you know, maybe round three of your time with New Books, uh, with the New
1: Books Network? <laughs> you know, I I'm still very much in the midst of of this book um so I haven't I haven't thought too much about what's next although, you know, there are some some aspects of this story that I think still intrigue me that I'd like to research further. Um, you know, as I've read Mary Frances Berry's book about Kelly House and the struggle for reparations in the late 19th century, I do think that there's a lot more that could be said about sort of the period between uh, Henrietta Wood in the 1870s and Kelly House uh, at the turn of the century. Um, so I am a little bit interested in kind of diving more into debates about reparations in that period. Uh, it's one question that I often get is, you know, what was the, how did, how did people react to Wood's victory at the time? Um, and certainly there was a lot of newspaper commentary. Uh, even in in national outlets like the New York Times, um, that were sort of reflecting on the significance and the meaning of her victory. Uh, but I would like to know more about sort of the discourse around restitution and reparations uh, during Reconstruction and immediately after Reconstruction. And one interesting thing that that I I found in reading the coverage of Woods case is how often the question of compensation to former slaveholders got sort of uh tied up together with the question of uh restitution or compensation to formerly enslaved people that these two topics even though um you know they're obviously conceptually distinct in the discourse of that time were often you know uh, bound up together in in newspaper editorials and in uh, even in some early kind of proposals for uh reparations um included some idea of compensation as well to former enslavers. And so that's something that interests me a little bit is thinking about kind of the long history of um, movements for compensation to slaveholders alongside the movement for reparations and why it is that um, those two things were often uh, talked about sort of in the same breath or in the same spaces
2: and and actually um do, do you have a few more minutes? I do have one last question. okay, now this is one that would be more fun. so if you had a chance to sit down with um with Henrietta Wood and her descendants. Specifically, her son. Right, you had them. You were able to resurrect them from the dead for <clears throat> for a five course meal in Chicago, wherever y'all want. Right, and you had a chance to ask them anything under the sun, any question or questions. You let's just say you get um, let's just say you get three questions, right? That they have to answer. Right, they have to answer what do what do you think what would you choose right
1: wow that's 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 a heavy question um you know obviously you know any any historian or someone who who spends a lot of time with a particular historical figure i'm sure would would want to know how they did you know did they did they capture um effectively enough what what that person um was going through i'm sure in many ways i i haven't um, but that would be, you know, some a topic of conversation, I'm sure. I, I think one of the big questions for me um, at the end of the story is n- not being 100% sure how would herself thought about her victory. Um, you know, the, the archival trail stops in a way uh, after she wins and even that 1879 interview where we um, started. At the end of that interview, she was still waiting for the payments from Ward. As she put it, she was waiting for him to, quote, pass over them checks. <laughs> um, and I was, of course, later able to confirm that he did um, in, the, in the court record. But one thing that, um, that, I, that I'm not able to, to show from the archive is what her reaction to the amount that she won was. Did she view it as, you know, sort of pittance or did she view it as a significant victory? Um, you know, that's something that I would certainly want to ask,, uh, you know, because, um, on the one hand, the money, I think, did make a difference for her son's life. Um, a lot of that is sort of my interpolating into the evidence um, in a way that I would want to to know from them how they thought about um, thought about this victory. It's kind of interesting to me that. The, the family um, descendants that I've spoken with didn't have uh, a lot of recollection of, of Wood's victory. Um, they At least uh, one of them knew about the lawsuit but uh, had not been aware of the victory um, or, or the amount that had been won um, and didn't even know that um, Arthur Sims had been born enslaved. And so that raises questions for me about um, how the story got told and passed down across generations and what they emphasized or didn't emphasize and and why you know what does that say about about how they themselves uh viewed this uh, legal victory you know in a larger sense did they did they view it as a, a substantive mm-hmm. victory that that played a role in in their own family's history
2: wow amazing amazing and y'all we have had the amazing opportunity to have this amazing author at Rice University. His name is Dr. W. Caleb McDaniel, associate professor of history at Rice University. And Dr. McDaniel has been on to discuss his phenomenal book, uh, published rather by uh, Oxford University Press entitled Sweet Taste of Liberty, a true story of slavery and restitution in America. And, Y'all, please go get this book. Please support our authors. And um, if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy New Books in African American Studies, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Because you always want to know how we are doing. And I'll just say it for myself, negatively or positively. I just want to know how how you think we're doing here. Um, and so... Uh, once again, please go get this book. Please support our authors. And um, once again, folks, I am so happy. This is actually my 55th interview That's in the last two years. That's great. And it, thank you, thank you. And um, it has been a pleasure. And I'm not saying this because I'm going to say that I'm done. It's only <laughs> getting started. It's only getting started. We got a lot of great content coming towards you, and we have some more um, hosts coming on the the program too. So. If you like my voice, believe me, I have to recruit some of them. You're going to love their voices and their stories and their interviews as well. And so, folks, I am your host, your co-host of the channel for today, PhD student at Rutgers University of New Brunswick, Adam McNeil, from New Books in African American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Over and out.